We're continuing our summer in the Psalms. We've looked at Psalm 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, and now we're in Psalm 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the pew backs around you. You might look for the English-speaking ones, unless you're fluent in Korean. You can grab one of those. If you're wondering what's going on with that, you're a visitor with us. We're one of multiple churches that gather in this building. It's us, North Point Church, Denton Korean Baptist Church, gathers uh, in the afternoons. And then over on the other side, they've planted a church, Risen Church, that has a good ministry to international students at TWU and UNT. They gather at 1130. And so lots of God's people gathering in lots of expressions in this one building. It gets lots of use. And so we're grateful for that. But you want to have your Bible open to Psalm 8. Yesterday, you know, we've got four kids, so we don't get to do this very often. But yesterday, we took our kids to the movies. And it cost $275 to go. We took our kids to the movies. We went and saw Aladdin. And we're a little bit behind the times as well. I know most of you, perhaps some of you have seen that. We went and saw the new Aladdin. And I'll admit, I was a little skeptical going in. A little skeptical about Will Smith. A little skeptical about CGI. Kind of, you know, all of the pomp and circumstance of the original animated movie, but with none of the guts or the soul, right? How are you going to outdo Robin Williams or Gilbert Gottfried as the parrot? And the answer is they didn't. It was still a pretty good movie, though. But one of the themes that came throughout the movie was, came at the beginning of the movie through the words of Jafar and to Aladdin and, and, and came full circle at the end of the movie. And it was this idea that if you're not the greatest one in the room, then you're nothing. This is what everybody was concerned with. Jafar was concerned with being the greatest one in the room for his own purposes. For much of the movie, Aladdin was concerned with being the greatest one in the room for his own purposes. The only one that was set apart that was concerned with greatness was Jasmine. But Jasmine wasn't so much concerned for her own glory. She was concerned for the good of others. Nevertheless, this was the theme that coursed through the whole movie. This idea that, that if you're not the greatest in the room, then you're nothing. So everybody's striving to be the greatest. I think this is true theologically. That God is always the greatest in the room. And that when you and I come to that apprehension, which is much more difficult to apprehend than it is to speak. Trust me, it's easier to, to preach on than it is to practice. That when that theological reality of the greatness of God becomes a controlling reality in your life, then all of a sudden you don't need to pursue your own greatness in the room anymore. It produces humility. It produces patience and trust. It produces godliness and hope. In fact, our only hope is if God and not us is the greatest one in the room at all times. That is what Psalm 8 is about. It is about the greatness and the majesty of God. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me there. Psalm chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to go all the way through verse 9 in our reading. Let's begin with the superscript. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Yet out of the mouth of babies and infants, you establish strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, well, then what, what is man that you're even mindful of him? What is the son of man that you even care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, and also all the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord to us. It has been inspired by his Holy Spirit. It is without error and it is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and for training every single one of us in righteousness. May the Lord, by his Spirit, write it on our hearts so that we would walk in it to his glory. This week as I was studying Psalm 8, it was so good. You wouldn't think that there's that much in nine verses, but there is. And on Thursday, I was in the middle of just kind of a pastoral crisis, going, how in the world am I going to preach all of this in one sermon? And so I decided, well, I'm going to preach it in two, because I'm the pastor and I can do that. And so Psalm 8, we're going to cover a little bit this week, and we're going to cover a little bit this next week. Because Psalm 8 is a really important psalm when it comes to understanding who God is and of what it is that he's seeking to accomplish through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the mission of his church in the world. It's so important, in fact, that Jesus is going to quote it in Matthew 25. Paul is going to quote Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians 1 and again in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's going to quote it elsewhere in Ephesians 1, and the author to Hebrews is going to quote it at length in Hebrews chapter 2. Next week, we're going to take a look at how these New Testament authors, through the light and the lens of Christ, are making sense of Psalm chapter 8. How is it that that they're now looking backwards through the cross in light of the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord and interpreting this psalm of David. You'll notice the structure here. Do you see the repetition there in verse 1? You see it again in verse 9. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David begins the psalm that way and he ends the psalm that way. That's what Grammatically, or in Hebrew poetry, we would call it an inclusio. It's everything that is included in between is trying to make much about what's being talked about in that inclusio. So what we're saying is, is that that inclusio, verse 1 and verse 9, is all about the praise of God's majestic name. And everything in between Psalm 1 and Psalm 9, like a, like a sandwich is all serving to build out that idea of God's majesty. It's like bookends. Majesty, majesty. Everything in the middle is all about that. That's how Psalm 8 is structured. And so you have this idea in Psalm 1, or in Psalm 8-1, and in Psalm 8-9, in the 
majestic name of the Lord. And in between, there's three stanzas, you can see it, that are expounding on the majesty of God in three specific ways. You see stanza one, the second half of verse one, all the way through the end of verse two, just glance and scan through that. You see the majesty of God is going to be displayed by his confounding enemies through babies. And then in verses three through four, we're going to see a second stanza in which God displays his majesty by caring for humanity. Thirdly, we're going to see God displaying his majesty in verses 5 through 8 in crowning humanity. Confounding enemies, caring for humanity, crowning humanity. All of which is meant to extol and exalt the majesty of God's name. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about that this week. Everything in between, all the meat in the sandwich, we're going to get to that next week. My primary concern is that if we're not all on the same page when it comes to God's majesty, we're going to miss what David is really trying to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 2 through 8. We all have to get our eyes raised to the majesty of God if we're going to understand Psalm 8. That is what it is all about. And so as I was praying and studying this week, I was confronted with the reality that there are Many days, in fact, there's no days in which I behold the majesty of God as I ought. And I know that there is no day in which you are fully beholding, appreciating, thanking, praising, worshiping the majesty of God as you were created to do. And if you've been in a church for any amount of time, then majesty is just kind of one of those words. It's in our songs, it's in our prayers. It can become one of those words that's familiar and perhaps becomes over-familiar. We just don't give it as much thought as it deserves, as much meditation as it deserves. Perhaps we might even take it for granted. And so today, what I want to do is I just want to talk about Psalm 8, verses 1 and 9, and use that as kind of a launching pad for a meditation on the majesty of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, I pray that you would use your word now. Raise our eyes. Help us to see and believe that you are great. Amen. I just want to begin our meditation this morning with defining majesty. If you're taking notes, you might just write majesty defined. And then I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about Two ways that we can cultivate or promote thinking greater thoughts about God. Two ways that we can do that. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. That when I'm talking about majesty, what am I talking about? Well, that word majesty, the English word majesty, comes from a Latin word that denotes greatness. So to speak of God's majesty is to speak of his greatness, that the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are everlasting. Psalm 93, God is great. Psalm 145, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works will I meditate. 
That to speak of the majesty of God is to speak of his greatness. We see this elsewhere in the Bible. When it speaks about God as being on high or in heaven or enthroned. All of it is speaking about his greatness and his majesty. And the thought in all of that is not that God is far away from us. But rather that he is far above us in greatness. And therefore is to be adored. It's the same thing that David is saying there at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. It's higher than the heavens in worth, in majesty, as majestic as the most glorious sunrise, as majestic as the Grand Canyon may be, as majestic as the most majestic mountains may be. They pale in comparison to the God whose glory has been set above all of them. That is the majesty of God. One author put it this way, that the Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by the knowledge of the greatness of God. What he's saying, and he's right, is that if you don't have a vision of a great God, if you don't behold the greatness of God, you will be less likely to trust and to worship. And as your eyes raise to the greatness of God and you see him as bigger and, and greater, you will be more inclined, more stimulated to trust and to worship. More greatness, more worship. Less greatness, less worship. So how is it then that we can form a right idea about God's greatness. I want to give you two ways. Two ways that we can form a right idea about God's greatness or his majesty. That we might be able to say with David and Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Number one, remove thoughts of God that make him too small. Remove thoughts of God that make him too small. Secondly, compare God to things that we think are great. Compare God to things that we think are great. Let's just consider that first way. Remove thoughts of God that make him too small. And in preparation for this part of our meditation, I want you to go to Psalm 139. Just put your finger there. We'll be there in a moment. But go to Psalm 139. Came up in our reading in our service this morning. Matt read it to us. Psalm 139. Just put your ribbon there or your bookmark or your finger or your screen, whatever you got. Here we're considering this idea, this first way that we want to remove thoughts of God that make him too small. And there are no less than two common errors, I think, that blind us to the majesty of God. And both of these errors are really just one error. And that one error is thinking thoughts of God that are too small. But the first error is this. That if something about God doesn't make sense, it must not be true. If something about God does not make sense, it must not be true. I have a friend of mine that I grew up with. He was always frustrated with technology. This was a roommate of mine, and so this was back in the days of DVD players, and we still use VHSs. 
whether he's installing a new one or whether he's trying to figure out a program on his computer or whatever the case was, he would always get so frustrated. He was technologically inept. And yet he would look at it and go, oh, this program, this program is so dumb. As if the problem was with the program. It was an ID10T error. Some of you will get that in about 20 minutes. Oh, there it is. But the problem was always with the program. The problem was always with the DVD player. The problem was always with, but it wasn't with his own understanding. I don't understand it. So the problem must be this program. In the same way, when some people encounter difficult truths about God, they assume that the problem must be with God and not them. For example, the Bible says, you might say, that God answers prayer, and yet my life is hard. I've asked God to take away my suffering, but I am still suffering. Therefore, God must not answer prayer. You ever thought that? Or perhaps you've encountered somebody that's given this kind of argument. Well, you say that God is all-powerful and all-good, and yet there's still evil in the world. And since there's evil in the world, God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good. For if God were all-powerful, then he could get rid of evil. But since he hasn't gotten rid of evil, he can't be good. Or... If God were all good, well, then he would really want to get rid of evil, but he hasn't gotten rid of evil, so obviously he can't and he's not all-powerful. In both of these instances, and in many, many others, if God doesn't act in a manner that I can understand, then the problem cannot be with me. The problem has got to be with God himself. If it doesn't make sense... It must not be true. Now, this person thinks that they are thinking big thoughts about God. But they are, in fact, thinking small thoughts about God because they cannot conceive of a God who would not act exactly how they would act in a given circumstance or have purposes that they could not know or understand. That the only God in their mind that is worth worshiping is a God that can be circumscribed by their own reason. But friend, that would make your rational capacity bigger than God. In which case, that is not a God worthy of your worship. That makes you God. And you are a terrible God. Just like me. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Romans 11. So error number one, the first error that causes us to drift into thinking small thoughts about God, is that if something about God doesn't make sense, then it must not be 
true. But there's a second error. And the error is this. I already know all I need to know about God. We're not much of a video game family, but we've turned into one recently. And that's because Zelda has come into our home. Judge me if you like. I don't care. I'm secure in Christ. <laughs> and this game, Zelda, is what is called, if you're unfamiliar with video games, it's an open world video game, which means you can go anywhere and do everything. And the world is massive. The topography changes, the enemies change, the buildings change, everything changes. It's massive. And so this world, which is expansive and huge, when you first jump in, it just feels limitless. And you're just kind of running around and seeing new things all the time. And, and it's really exciting. We've all been playing it together. Even my wife. I'm going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going down alone. Like sometimes we put the kids to bed and we're just. <laughs> but it's big. It's really big. But here's the crane. We've had this game now for a few months. And once you've seen all the sites and you've been to all the places, the game just isn't quite as fun. What once seemed big now seems small, and what once seemed exciting is now becoming a bit rote and boring. I mean, we still play from time to time, but not as much as we used to and not with the same kind of enthusiasm. I fear this is how many Christians think about God. That when God first brought you by his grace to repent and believe in the gospel, you were thrilled to be brought into the knowledge of God in Christ. Or perhaps at some point you came to a deeper understanding of the doctrines of grace and it was like the gospel just opened up big to you. And there was no bottom to it. You were thrilled and you loved learning new things about God. You were excited to get into parts of your Bible you had never visited before. But over time, as happens with some of us, that early sense of wonder begins to wane. You've done that Bible study. You've heard that sermon already. You've learned those truths. Perhaps this summer as we've been doing Behold Your God studies together. Perhaps some of you have even been tempted to grow bored or impatient in your study of the Bible thinking, I already know this. I've already learned this. You're just eager to get on to some new nugget that you haven't yet learned. And if any of this describes you, then you think thoughts of God that make him too small. You may have reduced the knowledge of God to knowing certain propositions about God, that God is love, that God is great, that God is wise, and so on and so forth. And while it's true that you cannot know God without knowing certain propositions about God, that's how he's revealed himself to us in his word Merely knowing propositions about God is not the same as knowing God as he is. And the cure to thinking thoughts about God that are too small. Or the cure to both of these errors that we've discussed of growing bored with the knowledge of God. 
is to meditate on God's incomprehensibility. What? That was a big word. Comprehend, then add some words on the front and the end of it. Incomprehensible. Cannot be comprehended. You say, well, wait a minute. Now, if, if God is incomprehensible, wouldn't that mean that we can't know anything about God? No, to say that God is incomprehensible is to say that God is not to say that God is utterly unknowable. It is to say that none of us can comprehend God exhaustively. Or to put it another way, to say that God is incomprehensible is to say that we can is not to say that we cannot know God, but it is to say that we cannot know God as God knows himself. We are finite. He is infinite. Our finite understanding cannot grasp that which is infinite. Only that which is infinite can grasp that which is infinite, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 that only the Holy Spirit of God is able to search the deep things of God. Only God can know God like that. And we can only know God to the degree that he's willing to reveal himself to us as he reveals himself to us in what he's created, Psalm 8, through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. But it is not to know God exhaustively. It is not to know God as God knows God. It is to say with the psalmist, Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Say, well, which is it? Does the psalmist know his greatness or is his greatness unsearchable? Answer, both. I know it because God has revealed it to me. And yet in my finite understanding, I cannot exhaust his greatness. I know God is great. I just can't fully comprehend how great God is. He is much greater than I could possibly comprehend. That's what we see in the book of Job. Behold, these, we read, are but the outskirts of his ways. I love this. Listen to this. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? The greatest thoughts you have ever thought about God are but a whisper compared to the thunderous glory and the greatness of God as he knows himself. John Calvin put it this way, we only praise God aright when we are filled and we are overwhelmed with an ecstatic admiration of the immensity of his power. That it is beyond comprehension. And that is what Psalm 139 is about. It's about the majesty of God, incomprehensible. Just follow along with me. We're going to see at least three things in this psalm. We're going to see, first of all, that he is all-knowing. We're going to see, secondly, that he's all-present. That is omnipresent. And we're going to see that he's all-powerful. That is omnipotent. Look at verses 1 through 6. We're going to see here, there's no limits to his knowledge. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Nothing in your life goes unnoticed by God. 
He sees those things that are visible for everyone to see, even the most mundane things of sitting down and rising up. And he sees those things that nobody else can see. He knows your very thoughts before you think them, and he knows your very words before you speak them. It's as the Apostle John says, 1 John 3, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So you may be able to hide your heart and your past and your future plans from other people, even the people that you're closest to, but you cannot hide anything from God. You may be able to deceive others into believing that you're something different than you really are, but you cannot deceive God. He sees through all of our pretense. He sees through all of our pretending. He sees us as we really are, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Friends, let me outside of the mercy and grace of God in Christ, that is a terrifying prospect. And yet, if you have been brought by God's grace to repent of sin and trust in Christ, of his perfect life and of his death on a cross as being sufficiently a sufficient substitute for you, believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then all of a sudden, that which becomes most terrifying, God knows me. God knows things about me that I don't know about me. God knows things about me that if other people in this room knew about me, they wouldn't want me here. God knows that. That apart from Christ, that's a terrifying notion. But when you're in Christ, there's no greater comfort. That to be known like that and yet accepted in Christ only serves to further exalt the majesty of God in saving sinners through his son and counting us righteous by his grace though we are anything but. So there are no limits to his knowledge according to the psalmist, Psalm 139. But in verses 5 through 12, we're going to see not only is there no limits to his knowledge, there's no limits to his presence. Where shall I go from your spirit, he says? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is a grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your, hand, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, well, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Just as there is no bounds to his knowledge of you, there is no bounds to his presence with you. He is not a distant God. Though he, his glory is above all creation, he is yet in the midst of his creation. He is both transcendent and altogether other, and yet he is imminent, both in his providence, in the way that he upholds us and guides all of history to his purposes, and for those whom are his special delight, his covenant people, he dwells in the midst of them. Even now, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, that we are the temple of God dwelling with us. And so you may be able to cut yourself off from other people. You may be able to be hyper introverted when it comes to connecting with others. And, and you might be tempted to cut yourself off from God but, or from others, but you cannot connect. You cannot cut yourself off from God. You may be able to cut yourself off from others, but you cannot ever cut yourself off from God. He is everywhere all the time. Well, not only is there no limits to his presence, there's also, verses 13 to 16, no limits to his power. 
for you form my inward parts. You've knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Oh, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God's power is revealed not only in his creation, but in the complexity of your own body, which he made for you. And just as there is no bounds to his knowledge of you and no bounds to his presence with you, there is no bounds to his power. How many of us live on a day-to-day basis as if God really isn't all that powerful? As if God really can't deliver us? That's what we talked about last week in Psalm 7. That God is mighty to deliver. Do you believe that? But here's the first step in apprehending the greatness of God. It is to realize how unlimited is his wisdom and his presence and his power. Unlimited. This is essentially what we find in Job 38. God confronts Job and basically says, hey, if you can match my majesty, I'll, talk all, I'll answer all your questions. He says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, Job. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor like me. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. But you're not as majestic as me. And because you're not as majestic as me, you cannot save you. And because my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways, and I am far more great and majestic than you are, then you should be humbled By the grace and the mercy of my revealing myself to you at all. Job learns that since he cannot match God's majesty, he shouldn't presume to find fault in how God is handling his circumstances. That God is limitless. He's beyond our comprehension. He's incomprehensible. The early church had, it's just an old legend, the medieval church rather, had a legend that held that Augustine was walking along one day on a beach while contemplating the Trinity, and he encountered a boy on the beach scooping up water out of the sea with a little shell. When he asked the boy what he was doing, the boy claimed that he was emptying the sea, which amused the theologian, because obviously that's impossible to do with a shell. And then Augustine realized how much less he could fit God's infinity into his finite mind. That God is greater to our finite minds than the whole of the oceans and the whole of the world to a little boy trying to empty them with a seashell. That's how great God is. Do you think thoughts like that about God? What does this teach us? Where should we go with this? Just think through how this applies to our lives. The incomprehensibility of God teaches us to submit our minds entirely to God's word so that we might know the truth about him. As we talked about, only the spirit of God can search the deep things of God. And God has revealed them to us in the words that have been inspired by his spirit. So God knows himself. God has revealed himself according to the knowledge 
that he has of himself, not fully because we're finite, but yet in part so that we might know him. And as one old theologian said, since then we are to discourse of the things of God. Let us assume that God has full knowledge of himself. You see that? Here's our first assumption. Before you think anything else, assume this. God has full knowledge of himself. And what should our response then be? He continues, and bow with humble reverence to his words. For he whom we can only know through his own utterances is the fitting witness concerning himself. There is no greater witness to God than God. Who are we to question his revelation of himself? And so we must not dismiss an idea about God or discard any teaching in the Bible simply because it transcends our understanding. That would be to deny the incomprehensibility of God. Nor should we ever pridefully assume that we already know all that we need to know about God because the doctrine of incomprehensibility says that, that there's always more God to know. Nor should the infinite depths of God deter us from studying him. Rather, it should energize us with awe. We should never stop and say, yeah, I already know that. When we get to the good stuff, the stuff that... When do we get to the stuff that I haven't learned yet? Ugh. I've already done this study like 80 times. That's to functionally deny the incomprehensibility of God. It's to assume that you can think thoughts that are as high as God himself. I've already done that. I've already been there. I'm ready for something new. Those are small thoughts about God. But when the godly see God's unfathomable majesty, as Job did, well, it's then that we repent of our foolish complaints against God when his ways are hard. Because he knows better than we do. And it teaches us to put our hands over our mouths and to humbly endure his discipline. Knowing that even when we can't see how it's going to work for our good, God knows. Because he says he does. So brothers and sisters, why should we ever expect to fully comprehend God. Rather than sitting in judgment over God, we should learn to sit at his feet for God alone knows the way of true wisdom and true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Oh, but I fear too often we begin with our own majesty and stand in judgment over God's word rather than recognizing God's majesty and submitting ourselves to his word Humbly and patiently and faithfully, even when we don't yet understand. Why would you? He's the infinite God. That you would be able to think thoughts as high as his. And so it is to meditate on that. So let us learn to glorify the incomprehensible God. Let us learn, as Thomas Watson illustrated, to admire where you cannot fathom for we can no more search out his infinite perfections than a man upon the top of the highest mountain can take a star in his hand. That may God teach us to say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways and have that not be discouraging to us, but encouraging because we go wherever our own knowledge and understanding is limited, his is limitless. Where mine is finite, his is infinite. Where mine is, is, is 
is blinded by sin and weakness. His is holy and pure. And it is uninfringed by anything that he's created. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So the first way that we want to think big thoughts about God is to get rid of thoughts about God that are too small. But the second way is to compare God with things that we consider great. Compare God to things that we consider great. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. So we've just considered the incomprehensibility of God. That the majesty of a God who is incomprehensible. Well, now we're going to consider the majesty. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. We're going to consider the majesty of the one who is not just incomprehensible, but is incomparable, is without comparison. Isaiah chapter 40. Just read along with me, beginning in verse 12. Actually, for context, let's go up to verse 9. This is what the word of the Lord says. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who's measured the waters in the, ho- in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and they are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like the grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who bring princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, 
that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Oh, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no mighty increases strength. Even youths will faint and be weary and young men will fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not be faint. That is the incomparability of God. Here, God is speaking through Isaiah to a people whose mood is the mood of many Christians today. Despondent, despairing people. People against whom the tide of pain and suffering has been running a long time. People who have ceased to believe that the power of God and the cause of Christ can ever prosper again. It's to these kind of people that God says in verse 10, behold your God. And we're going to see a number of things here. Just look at verse 12. Behold your God. God is greater than the greatest natural phenomenons. Verse 12. He is deeper than the, widest, than the deepest oceans. He's wider than the widest skies. He's stronger even than the strongest mountains. God is greater than the greatest natural phenomenons that we consider great. Not only that, but in verses 15 through 17, as you scan through that, God is greater than the greatest nations. He tells Israel, you tremble before the nations. You tremble before Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. You stand in awe of them. You feel afraid of them because their armies and their resources so far exceed your own. You are puny before the greatest nations. But all of the greatest nations on this planet, all combined together, oh, they are puny before me. They are like, verse 15, a drop from a bucket, dust on the scales. They are like fine dust. They are, according to verse 17, nothing before him, less than nothing. And they are emptiness. God is greater than even the greatest nations. And then in verses 18 through 20, we see again, God is greater even than our greatest idols. All of those good things in this world that we make into ultimate things are ultimately Less than nothing when it comes to God. And yet we put them in the very throne of God as if they're able to serve us and make us holy and to grant us joy as if in the same way that God can. That our idols might be comprised of the very best things in life, the very best gold and the very best silver, verse 19. But all those things ultimately tarnish and fade. The best relationships in life will always expire through death or distance. But God is eternal. He cannot diminish. He cannot fade. He cannot expire. He cannot die. And he cannot be destroyed. God is greater than your greatest idols. It's greater than any of those things that you put all of your hope and trust and identity in. He's greater than those things. But then he also says in verses 21 to 22, not only is God greater than, his, than our greatest idols, he is greater even than the greatest planet. 
verses 21 to 22. Just consider that scan, verses 21 and 22. He sits above the heavens. He's the one that laid the foundations. He's the one that knows the beginning. When we consider our planet, we think of things of a wide variety and a wide complexity. Many of you have seen the BBC series, Planet Earth, and you've just marveled at how majestic and amazing and glorious and diverse and in some ways seemingly unsearchable our planet is. We consider the seven and a half billion people that inhabit the earth. And yet God is above it all. He's above all of the beauty and the majesty of this earth. And of the seven and a half billion people that inhabit it, he says here that they are to him what grasshoppers are to you when you mow your lawn in the summer. They're insignificant in terms of majesty. Think about how vast the heavens above us are with its various layers, its troposphere, its stratosphere, its mesosphere, thermosphere, and exosphere. All working together to make this particular planet habitable. Well, God here says that all of that, to me, is like curtains in your bedroom. I just lay them out with the greatest of ease. It's nothing to me. Our planet dwarfs all of us, but God dwarfs this planet. God says in his word that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That whatever majesty you've beheld in the, in the creation is but a whisper of the glory and the majesty of God. It's a whisper. It's water in a seashell. Not only is God greater than the greatest planet, but verses 23 and 24, God is greater than the greatest rulers. Just scan through that. Verses 23 and 24. Consider those who have enough power in which their decisions affect the welfare and the lives of millions. Consider the rulers and the dictators and the empire builders. Consider the presidents and the senates who with a single word or a symbol single push of a button can send the entire world into chaos and war. Do you really suppose that the greatest rulers determine which way our world will go? God is greater than the greatest rulers. It says here that he brings them to nothing, verse 23. That the fullness, the fullness of their earthly glory and power is completely empty compared to God's glory and power. See that there in verse 23? It's emptiness. That he brings them to nothing. They are to God, verse 24. They are to God as rootless plants are to a category five hurricane. They don't stand a chance. That's how glorious and majestic our God is. Lastly, verses 25 and 26, he just keeps on going. God is not only greater than the greatest rulers, he is greater than the greatest galaxies. That when we consider the vastness of space with its trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, our imaginations can't grasp it. It's mind-numbing. What are trillions of stars and billions of galaxies and every other wonder in the cosmos when compared to God? They are so puny 
that he can count them with less effort than it takes a PhD to count to 10. It says he counts every single one of them. He names every single one of them in the same way that we name our own children. I have four children. We live in 2,000 square feet. I get their names confused all the time, and they're constantly slipping away from my attention. But God knows every single star in what seems like an infinite amount of space. Not one of them ever escapes his attention, and he never forgets any one of their names. That's how great God is. Given all of this, one thing after another, comparing God, the greatness of God, to those things that we would consider great, God is greater than all of it. Isaiah offers three rebukes in the form of three questions. Verse 25, he says this, To whom then will you compare me? God rebukes wrong thoughts about God. He says, your forgetfulness of me, your despairing over me, that your ambivalence toward me, that your passion for the greatest things in this life that yet never draw your attention and your affections to me, though I am far greater, are all evidence of a small view of me. To whom will you compare me? I am incomparable. But then he asks another question. Not only does God rebuke wrong thoughts about himself, but he also rebukes wrong thoughts about ourselves. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is regarded, disregarded by my God? How easy is it to consider our own circumstances as being bigger than God? To look at our own circumstances and think that the God who is greater than the greatest things that we can lay our eyes on or imagine has somehow we have fallen outside of his view. That he has forgotten our name. That he's somehow lost us in the crowd. He says, considering all of this, considering how great I am, considering how majestic I am, why would you ever think that about me? I forget not a single star. I know every single one of them. You don't think I know where you're at? You think I've forgotten you? How much more significant are you than them? Oh, you are not hidden from me. I have not disregarded you. I am greater even than your own understanding. But then thirdly, he rebukes not only wrong thoughts about God, not only wrong thoughts about ourselves, but he rebukes our slowness to believe in his majesty. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has the preacher not been preaching? Is what he's saying. Have you not been paying attention? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Are you faint? He gives power to the faint. Are you weak? He can increase your strength. Oh, you may be faint and weary. You may be exhausted. That is because we are not great. And yet God who is can make those who wait for him great. He can renew their strength. He can cause them to mount up with wings like eagles. He can cause them to run and not grow weary and shall walk and not grow faint. 
Brothers and sisters, we can know this in part now, but we will know this truth in full when our Lord and Savior comes again. That you will no longer be plagued by sin. You will no longer be weary. You will no longer be tired. You will no longer be inhibited in your service to our great Lord anymore. You will be fully energized without the presence of the sin anywhere. Fully energized by the Spirit of God, united by Christ, entranced by His glory to serve Him and to rule with Him for eternity. I know that many of you this morning are weak. I know that many of you are weary. I know that there are some of you who feel like God has forgotten about you. He's forgotten your name or that you've gotten lost in the crowd. God is greater than the greatest parent. God will not forget your name. God cannot lose you in a crowd. He knows exactly where you are. And in his grace, he has brought you there and he will bring you out of it for your good and his glory. So when you're tempted to think low thoughts about God, when you don't understand him or you've grown bored with him, consider his incomprehensibility. When you're tempted to despair or grow discouraged because it feels like you're all on your own and everything in this world is so much greater than you and is about to topple over on top of you, consider God's incomparability. He is greater than all of that. Let's pray.